All right, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Stack Strength Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Daniel DeBrock, and today I'm uh, I'm being joined by Andrew Locke. So, Andrew, thank you so much for jumping on, man. It's uh, it's great to have you here. I think this is the first time we've connected actually face to face, so it's really good to have you here. I'm really excited for the uh, the conversation. Absolutely, Danger Dan. It's good to catch up with you. I'm always enjoying seeing your work on social media. A lot of things I, I certainly um, find resonate with me as well. So that's great. We definitely have some congruency in our approaches to the world. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate that. And I'm sure we're going to get into uh, actually quite a bit of that in uh, in the conversation. But I wanted to start off just by um, first getting to know a little bit about you and uh, and your background for some of the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with who you are. So could you give a brief, uh, brief history of yourself, some of the work you do and kind of what you're involved in at the moment? Seriously, someone doesn't know who I am. What rock have they been living under? Huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it's always been an interesting part of a journey. I, I started playing baseball uh, fairly young. And one of the things about that was I was often seeing the physical therapy departments for the various things that happen when young athletes throw balls really hard. So it was funny. In fact, I probably looked back and I say I was probably about 13 years old when I first figured out that that was a career I was looking to follow. Realistically, I actually wanted to be a professional baseball player. So I played for Australia in the uh, inaugural World Youth Series in Ohio. Uh, was selected to the All-Australian High School cricket team. Basically, was planning to be a pro athlete. But I also love professional wrestling as well. So that was certainly on the cards. And I was getting scouted to do that because I was a little bit of a bigger guy as well. Fortunately, there is the gift of injury that comes into that and... Yeah, through weight training, I did get significantly injured. I probably blew my L5-S1 in such a fashion that um, it was so impressive that the surgeon who actually reviewed the scans put them up and started wiping them, thinking somebody had sneezed on them. Uh, that wasn't a sneeze. That was the left, what was left of my disc on that MRI. That did change my approach to life. So I pursued my physio career while still enjoying the sports and things but just basically i realized um with a lot of forces that were happening and a lot of things in life that perhaps pursuing the uh, professional wrestling careers and the, the love of baseball dropped off to where i was just loving weight training and so there i was going through university and graduating and ending up in a um, sports medicine clinic that was supposedly the world's best shoulder clinic attached to some of the best researchers in the world and surgeons uh, a bit of career advice comes out to me there. The first day I started work, the boss of the um, the group there, she pulled me in and said, okay, your job here is to become the best in the world at something. And she said, no, I'm the best in the world at shoulders, so you better choose something else. I got taken on realistically because of my baseball background and the um, clinic worked with a lot of high-level athletes who did throw. But sports medicine in those days, most people thought, Sport meant you played football, you might have gone for a run, you probably did a bit of cycling. But that was the extent of what real sports medicine doctors seemed to understand. There was no one there who actually understood weight training. So I got stuck into um, learning how to rehab bench press problems because no one else on the staff had a clue about them. And that was the beginning of the, um, the formulation where I was on the coal front figuring out with the best team there how to rehab shoulders for weight training athletes. And it's a passion that never stopped. So, of course, I couldn't choose shoulders to be my specialty, even though that's something I just kept with. Then I just moved on to lumbar spine problems because that was the thing that was most poorly taught at university. So I went through the McKenzie postgraduate program and was credentialed, um, spent some great time learning from the incredible Professor Stuart McGill, who's been an absolute wonderful person as far as my career went. I think I first started his, reading his research papers in... 1996 when i was down in the dungeons at the universities came across the name mcgill and fortunately the first time i met him was 2015 as i would ask him some great questions so it's been a long wonderful career and it still just keeps going with a commitment to strength athletes that's awesome man and it's funny because to kind of touch on mcgill like there are always these swings of the pendulum you know where initially there was this really heavy buy-in to the biomedical model and mm. then there was this kind of oppositional swing where 
you know, people would say things like there's no relationship between technique and injury and none of that matters. And, and I was just like, okay, guys, come on. Like there's obviously elements to, to all these aspects that, that very clearly like work together. And I mean, the thing, yeah. So every now and then when I see these like little memes of McGill or something like that, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I don't think you have to really agree perfectly with everyone, but to kind of discount some people because there's maybe like a change in, um, a change of guard or kind of like a paradigm shift or whatever you want to call it. It's like, have you, ever, have you ever looked at the physiques of the people ever looked at the physiques of the people who say lifting technique doesn't matter. All right. Yeah, yeah, game exactly. Over. exactly. They don't yeah. have physiques. They don't lift. They're useless for what they do. They're academically basically enjoying their little places in universities where they're not going to be challenged. They're probably clinically incompetent. They can't rehab a single 400 kilo deadlifter. But they'll sit in there and they'll teach a whole bunch of new grads who are coming into university. There's no relationship between technique and injury. And you know what that comes from? It comes from a thing called recency bias. These people are avoiding recognizing facts which have been researched for decades. It was Hippocrates who said that the foolish is a doctor who despises the wisdom of the ancients. I mean, that was almost 3,000 years ago. He knew the fact that you had to learn from the past. So these academics are focused upon basically avoiding anything to do which may conflict with their narrative. And shit, there is a lot of it. And it's unfortunate, especially because you see that in, uh, in social media as well, right? Like, it's almost like, you know how kind of these these like fitness circles will have clickbaity stuff where it's like lose 30 pounds in just three days or whatever crazy you know claim they're making but in the whole you know quote unquote evidence-based community i see the exact same thing happening just with research papers where it's like oh, man. This, new, this new study came out and it proves did it and it's like come on guys like let's 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 get real here the like social media Social media yeah. is the Garden of Eden for the participation award winner. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. The place that they flourish. Yeah. Man, these are people who have absolutely no credibility. They've got no clinical competence. They've got no history, but they've still got a voice on social media. And if you know how to write clickbait, you'll get a lot of people who will click on it and argue with you. It's so funny because it's such a such a great way to put it, the Garden of Eden for people who, who win participation trophies. But uh, I, uh, before we get too off topic, I wanted to, to actually start um, with, uh, with something that's going to be coming up for you in the next little bit. So mm. you're actually uh, doing a presentation at Kabuki Education Week over the next little bit. So I'm really looking forward to actually seeing your presentation. I know you were talking about uh, the lumbar spine and how it pertains to lifting. So... I actually wanted to just give the opportunity for you to just kind of pitch that, talk a little bit about some of the things you might uh, might discuss on uh, on the presentation, uh, just because I know a lot of people who follow me are probably familiar with you as well and are probably looking forward to, uh, to, to hearing what you have to say. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I'm definitely going to bring to people's attention is a thing that there's not, or a topic that's not realistically taught at universities unless you're in anthropology and that is evolutionary anatomy now evolutionary anatomy defines how we as homo sapiens have become to have the body that we currently have all right you're getting the foundation stones there of why technique matters so i'm going to take people into evolutionary anatomy how we changed over 4.4 million years to become the only primate that has a lumbar lordosis and the muscular and bony system has changed to accommodate to that. Now, if you can imagine the muscles all have their purposes like pulleys, and realistically, I sometimes call this um, biological engineering, and that's where McGill's excellence can certainly shine. He can show you how the muscular system balances, and if you want to have time to read some of the 350-plus peer-reviewed papers that he's authored, um, you'll find that there's a lot of solid backing up evidence in all those papers. So my work especially will go into the Kabuki Education Week is showing people the reality, taking away the recency bias and taking people to the research that they probably never knew existed, which but was this foundation stone for how we all move. So this is really a big part of it. What are the rules for lumbar spines in lifting? 
how do they behave? This is not going to be fantasy land. It's going to be straightforward science. And you'll understand why you can apply principles to lifting and then principles to rehabilitation for that lifter, even in any task. If you want to be a contortionist, I'll show you how that works, why it works. If you need to lift a four to 500 kilo deadlift, we'll talk about the mechanics that are behind that. Squat technique. But basically, when it comes down to it, it's about anatomy. It's about your particular body, how you are put together, and that does vary across the globe as well. So there are certain things we can do to evaluate that with individuals as well, because that will dictate somewhat how your technique is going to evolve. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to do the Ed Kabuki Education Week. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. That's really cool. I've definitely never heard that. Um, I've definitely never heard discussion on like spine or, or lifting mechanics from that perspective of what did you call it? anthropology anthropology was it? yeah that is it you, know, is you, have a specific, you said i can't remember if it was anthropological uh anatomy or evolutionary anatomy it'll be the same that'll be you can interchange those two oh, okay cool yeah no I've, I've never heard of that that's really interesting yeah um, it defines us as human beings it defines us as homo sapiens it tells us how we got to here, got to this place, and why we do what we do, why we're different to all the other primates. Honestly, that stuff is so interesting. So, um, just evolutionary aspects that kind of bleed into, I guess, more modern uh, subjects. And this is kind of a tangent that I'll go off on. But like, um, when you look at mate selection, when you look at like uh, dominance hierarchies or competence hierarchies, mm. when you look at uh, evolutionary psychology and and how that relates to a lot of how we look at the world nowadays and you're just like, are you guys forgetting all of this stuff? Like there are certain things um, and I'm not looking to get political, so I'm, I'll just kind of end it here, but. Um, oh, go political, go for it, Dan. There's, there's definitely certain things where there's all these presuppositions around it. Like, you know, why people behave or interact in certain ways. And I'm like, you are aware, like we're animals. Like we are animals. Like we are governed by these same biological uh, you know, compensatory mechanisms that other animals are, right? Just in different capacities. And so like to try and separate ourselves from this evolutionary history seems a little bit crazy to me. And I mean, you know, you look at basic things like, uh, and I, so I talked about this on a podcast previously with someone who this was a little bit more their subject matter uh, expertise, but I'm like mate selection, you know, and, and it's like, oh, what do women like in women? And then you can actually kind of create a, a pretty interesting systemic approach to finding an appropriate mate and, and there's a couple things you can do it like it's super interesting this is nothing to do with fitness really but it's it's just incredibly interesting so i'm definitely looking forward to hearing your 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 lecture anyways which is a really roundabout way of saying that oh it really is and you're really onto it we are absolutely integrated primates and that's what we are in all the ways you just discussed. In fact, if readers, if um, your listeners are interested, there's a great book called Will by a guy called G. Gordon Liddy. He died a couple of years ago. And I remember reading it, and that was one of the, the great inspirational books. But um, he wrote about when he was going to select his wife, how he had put down the important things, at what height she would have to be, uh, what sort of area of expertise she would need to have intellectually. And he wrote this in the book and you know, he eventually married the, the person who he described because he wanted his genetic progeny to be excellent. So he chose a mate who was going to be excellent. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I, I wanted to touch on something that you actually, uh, you kind of brought up basically right at the start of, of the, the conversation. And so I recently saw a video where it was actually a collaboration between you and the squat doc. So I, I love a lot of his stuff too, so shout out to him. Um, and you were highlighting the disconnect between like knowledge and practical sorry practical application in terms of there's there's definitely a disconnect you know between the the purveyors of truth or purveyors of research and science and then the people who are actually in the trenches and you know it's really cool because now there is more of a growing body of of people who kind of have their hand in both where they are solid athletes but they're also very very well educated and so mm -hmm. i wanted to just kind of uh I was hoping that you could kind of expand on that, give a couple of examples of like, okay, this is some of the stuff that's happening. These are some of the issues and here's what we need to do in order to be able to identify those things and probably go in a better direction. Uh, it does basically come from education because of course, most of the people who are, are vocal in social media who write things which are blatantly wrong 
it's not maybe because their intent is that they're going to be wrong it's just they they haven't been educated and the little bit of education that they do have is well and so, truly outside of their area of ability to critically analyze it if you look at all the great coaches that we have they're all very experienced individuals they have spent a lot of time a lot of years and their records stand behind them people such as chris duffin ed cohen um, Australian strength coach, Sebastian Oreb. Now, some of these people may not even have degrees, but their time in the trenches has given them a unique understanding of the application of a body to a weight, moving it. Now, your academics, they've come through the university system where they haven't got any chalk dust on their palms or their back. The only things they've got are some calluses on their fingertips. So the problem is they're disconnected from the actual task to which they're writing about. So if you want to write a paper about lifting technique and you say, I've done a meta-analysis of lifting techniques and uh, here's the answers, but when you read the research papers, nothing's lifted over 30 kilos or 10 kilos. And people are quoting this work because they don't know how to critically analyze. It just makes a mess. The real um, approach I've got to say is if people want to get information, look at the person who's providing it. Do they actually treat professionals and athletes who have success are they bringing a person back from an injury to back to the platform and success and explaining how they're doing it are these people themselves people who have spent time trying to understand what they do themselves before they have treated somebody else there's your truth stones that's it coming down from the mountain like charlton heston man this is it You've got to look to the person who's bringing the information. And a lot of the university people, of course, are going to quote things about lifting because they're not lifters and they're just following somebody who doesn't lift as well. There was a vocal person on um, social media who's basically in private conversation said he doesn't lift and all he does is play a bit of soccer, but he's out there attacking McGill as much as he can. These are people who are a little bit um, dishonest and they're probably just pushing their agenda. And they do it by memes. Wonderful, isn't it? So, no, I follow people who actually publish volumes of work which are critically analysed. And there's a guy called O'Sullivan. Now, O'Sullivan, who um, leads a lot of the pain science world, I don't think he's lifted a weight in his life. And if he has, he probably does it fairly poorly. And I can look back at his early research and it was brilliant. It was wonderful. He wrote a fantastic paper on spondylolisthesis in which he stated that you need to have a very specific diagnosis to be able to apply a specific intervention. Couldn't be much more true a statement than that. But he failed, and as a result, he's teaching pain science, which is it, nothing really matters. It's all in your head, pretty much, and how you're approaching it. Yet you look at his body, man, seriously. No, he's never lifted anything significant to a level where it would be challenging. And yet he's going to write the research papers that are going to teach our students. I'd rather look at Ed Cohen as a lecturer. Yeah, it's so I think, and to 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 be fully transparent, like I definitely when I first started getting into reading a little bit more of like the you know research dense type material, whether it was in ebooks or textbooks or or actual original research itself, I was definitely guilty of being like, oh, where's your citation? Where's your citation? Like always looking for this. But then I think, and and I and the thing is, I think a lot of people just kind of stay there. They don't necessarily go past that. And so when I'm saying some of the stuff that I'm going to say, I'm not necessarily saying it from like, you know, pointing fingers, but it's just, it's more like, hey, be aware of this stuff because I was guilty of it and a lot of other people were guilty of it too. And so, you know, I think there's kind of a misunderstanding about how, like just about science in general and how research is conducted. Cause it's like, you know, oh, well, there's no, there's so much research on this. And it's like, man, I don't think you really understand the constraints of, of research and how it actually works. Like there's no research on top level athletes. Like even when they say nationally qualified, you look <laughs> at them and they're not like they're nationally qualified, which gives a sort of false sense of like um, authority or, or experience level. But then you look at their list and it's like a 200 kilo squat and you're like, I'm sorry, that's just not very good. You know? <laughs> and, and that's not to trash anyone, but again, you, you really have to be cautious about like what you're taking away from these things exactly like what you're saying. And 
then in addition to that, like how many studies are there on the SSB squat? Like what, five? Like I, I'm not sure, but I've only seen like two maybe. And so yeah, it's like, well, how much can we really know about utilization of this implement that pretty much every powerlifter uses, right? And that's only one example. It's like, you know, so there's so many different things that if you wanted to study it really critically, it would take forever. And that's not a, a knock on science. It's just that I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that there's practical limitations to those things. And then conversely, just so I'm being fair, you know, there's plenty of times where you have all of this like anecdotal evidence and you're like, oh, well, see, this is what's working. You know, like the uh, an example I always use is Phil Heath. Phil Heath would say, I eat fish because it thins my skin. And the thing <laughs> is, is, his observation was correct. He got leaner when he ate fish, but it wasn't because it thinned his skin. It's because it has a lower fat content. And so it dropped his total caloric intake. So the mechanism that he proposed was incorrect, but his observation was correct. And then researchers were able to look at that and say, hey, actually, that's not true because of this. So I think there's definitely like a give and take, but it's when you don't necessarily understand the, the parameters and the limitations of either side. I think that's where people really get into trouble. You nailed it. That's absolutely it. What you brought to that was the foundation stones that are underpinning the observations. The observations could be incorrect, but the underpinning biomechanics are not going to change. If you wanted to understand about the SSB, ask Chris Duffin. Okay, he's an engineer. Guess what? He's going to tell you how muscles go together, how levers and pulleys go together, how the placement of a weight in a certain position is, and how that affects the body. Now, guess what? You're probably going to get the best answer from him rather than somebody who's observing somebody squatting with an SSB. Because realistically, he's applying engineering to a biological uh, body. Fantastic. That's the facts that I follow. And so if you have a, the famous recency bias that's set up into the academic world at now, oh, you can't read a paper that's older, ten, older than 10 years old, uh, you're going to miss everything that's biomechanically well-written because you want to make sure those students don't get to see it. So I can take you back to Adams's papers back in the 80s. Fantastic. Winner of the Volvo Spine Awards. Outstanding. The demonstration that a lumbar spine disc gets injured in flexion has never been not shown in any studies and you can put that into an mri in a living person there's demonstrations of how discs behave you can do it in a computer model in silica and they come out with the same answers you can go do it with a pig spine like mcgill may have done and guess what comes out with the same answers you can do it like adams did with cadavers comes out with the same answers everything shows that the lumbar disc injury comes from flexion compression well guess what that's it there's no argument Ah, but there's nothing in the last 10 years. You're going to be shown about that because it's all previously been published. We already seen this. Though some of the MRIs and some of the in silica models will still be more recent. But you're not going to realize that because the university said you can't quote it. Here's another thought on the recency bias. If you read a research paper that's written today or published today, hey, I've got one coming out again soon. Um, what you're going to find is in the references, they're going to reference papers that are older than 10 years old. Does that mean that research paper is now invalid because that's what you've decided? You can't quote anything older than that? That means you'll never read a research paper because everything quoted in there will have previous academic uh, references. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny actually because that that is something that I've definitely noticed as well where it's like, oh, well, that paper's from the 80s. And it's like, I mean, I don't exactly know when gravity was kind of discovered and, and put to and put to pen and like, you know, this is our basic understanding of it. But I feel like that's kind of stood the test of time. And, and I understand that, you know, innovation happens. We learn new things. We understand a concept better. So I think those are all valid counterpoints. But at the same time, I think there's definitely limitations when we just have that as a general heuristic. And, and it's not necessarily question or weighed against the actual quality of the data that, that you're looking at. Um, it's the best world. Yeah, we, live in, we, live in the, we live in the trenches, us, Dan. That's what we enjoy. We don't just sit and play on keyboards. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky because I'm getting a little bit, I'm getting to do a little bit more of the education side of things now, um, where that's a lot more what I do. I've actually been so freaking busy that I haven't really had a chance to, to do my own uh, Instagram or any of my own social media stuff, but uh, but it's been great because like there's really something that happens when you change from just learning to teaching, 
Mm. Like your level of understanding has to just be so much higher because someone asks a question, you're like, oh, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> You've really got to understand things like meticulously. And so it's it's really, really been a cool experience. But uh, but yeah, I, I always, always, always want to maintain a client roster. Like even right now, my client roster is pretty small. I think I have like 26 clients, you mm. know, but um, but I always want to make sure that I don't turn into one of those guys who's just like kind of talking shit. You know, <laughs> and like sort of resting on your laurels, I guess, where it's like, well, I used to coach people. I used to be an athlete. And it's like, well, things change. Well, see, that's me every night. I'm I'm usually working until about good midnight, at least at the moment. I'm editing a lumbar spine uh, online course. Uh, it started off as 106 pages the first time I wrote it. Uh, it's well over 210 pages now. And it just keeps growing and growing and now it's basically finished its first stage and now the next thing is to do the um video lectures that will come with it and that is a lot of time spent on the pc but i'm still in the gym two hours a day there'll be no less than that i'm actually going off to train with a um, pro bodybuilder called josh lenardowitz today so josh and myself are going to be videoing a back training session today he's coming back with a big look towards the um mr olympia in 2023 so it'd be great to train with someone like that, which horrifies me because he does um, walking lunges with 180 kilos. And <laughs> thank God we're not training legs today. That's absurd. So, yeah, so we get to play with really good people. So even though we're on our on our PCs, we're doing our work and on our social media, we still don't sacrifice our time in the gym for that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's at least as important, if not more so important, because it's like I've never seen someone just get amazing results by doing research. But I, I've seen tons of people who are completely stupid and who couldn't explain a goddamn thing, get great results just through trial and error. So I, I definitely think that like one's. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think you can really separate them. But um, when when it comes to. Um, your own learning and and how you're directing that is there any particular subject at the moment that you're studying or you're really looking into that you are particularly passionate about i'm always passionate every single day about anything to do with the movement of resistance by the human body so this weekend i'm going to drive to a place called castle maine where we have the australia's strongest pro invitational and it's a strongman comp that has some internationals there I'm going in to see quite a few of the athletes and I'm sponsoring the Atlas Stone event for that. So put the money into your community. Um, powerlifting is obviously a place I spend a lot of time, but now I'm spending a lot of time in the bodybuilding world as well. So it's all about the passion for using weights to achieve some form of outcome. Strongman, powerlifting, bodybuilding. And next, as I'm coming to the US, coming to the States in basically late May and going to the first uh workshop i'm doing i think is with ed cohen in um california at the el luchador barbell club i'm basically going to be teaching the rehab components to powerlifting but i'm also going to be teaming up with a crossfit um, crew somewhere and i'm going to be teaching the rehab work with crossfit uh there's going to be work with strongmen as well there's work with mma and jujitsu people that i'm also going to be doing tours with so this is all about the human body being taken to the limits, people training for those things, and the injuries they experience, and how the solutions are relatively simple. I did see somebody who once said, not uncommonly seen, oh, we don't know much about lower back pain. I just think, think, speak for yourself. I know pretty much everything you need to know about it. I haven't spent the last almost 30 years not learning maybe that person doesn't understand it because it's well beyond their realm of understanding but for me i'm not seeing any mysteries at all i'll be showing you that there are so many different components the passive the active the neurological the proprioceptive the cyclic loading if you're going to pr produce a total um, rehab package for a human being you have to understand all those components well i do because i spend a lot of time doing it but if you know you spend all your time doing knees over toes, you probably don't quite know lower backs very well. And it's a reasonable statement to say that you probably don't know lower back stuff. That's fair. But um, don't speak for me because I do. Yeah, that's fair. I, I mean, I, I've definitely, every now and then you kind of get humbled, or at least I definitely do. So 
I'll be reading a paper, um, you know, about certain like molecular signaling or something like that for hypertrophy. And and when you read, like, it's funny actually, because I was talking to Kasim uh, about this not too long ago, and he he said the exact same thing, where it's just like there's there's a niche, like there's strength sports, but then there's a niche within the niche, and then there's a niche within that niche, and like. <laughs> the more specialized you become, like I'll read a paper and I'm just like, I I understood maybe, maybe one sentence out of this whole thing. And I'm like, that's, there's no point in me trying to read this. So like, I, mm. you know what I mean? Like, I'm just going to go and talk to someone who I know like knows their shit. And I'm gonna be like, Hey, can you just translate this for me? So I can understand <laughs> like, it may as well be in fucking Russian. You know, I'm just like, I have no idea what this means. I and, did, I did um, that with a, um, influencer who asked me about a research paper and i explained it quite clearly to them what it was <laughs> and then they went out and totally went the opposite direction is the way they published it and they do know the answers they're being as dishonest as i could possibly get oh wow yeah that's not great i uh i don't yeah i don't know i <laughs> there are certain things where i'm just like i used to think that people should read research if they're really interested in, in it and now i'm like i think that's probably one of the worst ways that you could learn in my opinion I like that. you know that's a good unless, point unless you're like actually in school doing a phd and you need to know this stuff like i think if you want to learn probably that's one of the worst ways like you know <laughs> if you want to learn about nutrition man go buy like dr mike israel's renaissance periodization the what is rp diet mm. like that's got 90% of all the practical relevant stuff for you in dieting, you know, is it a hundred percent? No, but it's, it's going to get you so damn far. You want to get like a good book on program design, go check out like Chad Wesley Smith. He's got tons of programming shit for powerlifting. Hmm. Is it covering everything? No, but it's going to get you again, like 90% of the way there. And then the rest is like specialized details and just experience. I agree. So like, That's an excellent way to look at it, Dan is, look to the authors who have already done a lot of that work there understand their opinions how they have based their opinions because they'll back it up in a book and then you're going to be able to use that to start to dissect papers yourself and that's the thing i don't i can't remember the last paper i that i actually have seen of any recency that doesn't have a massive invalidity in just the methods and the selection criteria so the outcome is going to be irrelevant because i just realized the methods were erroneous and it's, it goes to the point where, yeah, don't bother reading that research because you've already, it's failed as a study from its basic tenets, the way it's set up. But how many people know that? Well, clearly whoever supervised it didn't realize it. Yeah, reading research is not the way to go unless you understand that area deeply because you can be misled spectacularly. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I mean, like, even to what I was saying before, there have been times, like several times where I've had to, outsource it to someone else from just like i i think this is kind of like these are the things that i'm noticing am i right and they'll be like you're right about this you're wrong about this da, da, da. i'm like oh okay cool thanks for clarifying that and it's like you know and this is something that i do for a living you know what i mean and so if someone's just kind of like interested i'm like man you're i just think you're kind of wasting time like you're much better off taking courses you know you have your your back course coming up like why not just take a course right from exactly it's like you've dedicated like 30 years you said why am I going to try and learn for 30 years and struggle on my own when I can just take a course and be like, oh, there's, you know, the capitulation of this guy's experience and, and, and recommendations and all this stuff. It's like, it just seems like kind of an accelerated process. And I think one of the things about that is as an individual, be a person with great integrity and you'll get some respect from then the people you're going to be dealing with. It's mm -hmm. like Professor McGill. I had a, an observation in the clinic, which is one of the things I noticed was, by doing a particular gluteal exercise, it changed the lumbar spine's extension motion in a test that I had no belief it was supposed to change. But that's one of the things I do always in clinic is if I've got a belief that something shouldn't change, I'll test it to make sure that it didn't change because it doesn't seem related. And then suddenly, oh shit, it did change. Okay, now I've got to understand why. That was an important part of um, my development was when I was doing a master's degree, I was working at a, a hospital and they had me work, seeing patients there under the, that, um, that part of the program. And after the first week of working in that hospital, um, the head of the department once again took me into the office and said, stop fixing people. You're wasting your time. You're supposed to be here to learn. All you're doing is you know what works. Okay, these people are not here for you to get better. They're here for you to learn from.
So now you are banned from using any technique and any approach that you believe you know why it works, and you are only allowed to do the things you don't believe work. Well, that was the best thing I could have been, best gift to be given. Okay, test everything. And from then on, I've done it for the last however many years, last couple of decades. It's always test what you don't believe, because guess what? You're going to find something there that is outside your belief system, then you better explain it. So I did that with a, a um, particular glute exercise and lumbar spine relationship. And I wrote off an email to um, Professor McGill and said, look, this is what I've observed. I've been trying to figure it out. I've got this answer. What do you think about that? And his beautiful response was, he attached four uh, research papers and said, here's a possible alternative. Now, it wasn't you're wrong. It was, here's an alternative. Look at this. Now, his alternative was entirely correct, but it took me two years to probably understand those research papers. And now I look at them. Now I look at them like they're you know little golden books because I understand the process and I can teach the process. And I think that's one of the good things is when you don't understand something, something, and you spend your time learning it, you can teach it better. Yeah, it really does force you to. I think. Um, oh gosh, I don't know. I don't know who said it, but I know a long time ago um, there was kind of this like sort of adage or heuristic where it's like you know mediocre athletes make the best coaches because they don't have that natural talent and so they have to do everything in their power and you know turn every like look under every rock or whatever and i'm not entirely sure that i agree with that but i definitely understand the basic premise of what they're trying to get at where it's like you're just perpetually interested in learning and growing and you're like i'm going to try and do everything in my capacity to, to get as much as i can um and so yeah i think that's a really interesting thing but that also is like a, a temperamental thing as well like there's so many people who i think it stop learning whether it's because they stop caring or even sometimes just because of like practical constraints like mm. i've honestly found it really hard to keep up with the same amount of reading as i used to just with my total workload like i, I work like 12 hours five days a week sometimes and then i work on the weekends as well and so it's like oh, it's it's just it's a lot and so um so it can be pretty difficult and so i mean for better or worse it's it's really tough to kind of keep up with that demand but i wanted to uh i wanted to talk um or, I'm, sorry, gonna I wanted to to, I'm gonna get I you there because i got another great one just came to my head uh -huh. now you know mcgill and carol wrote the gift of injury right okay yeah, yeah yeah actually gift of we have we have a ton of mcgill's books over here, I was just looking at it, and we have the three. We've got McGill's, uh, the gift of injury, and then there is the the low back something or other. I can't remember the what back it was. Mechanic. Yes, yes, yes. And we've yeah. got the other one, which I can't Ult remember what that. Ultimate back fit pro and low back disorders. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we've got those three three big stacks. I just walked <laughs> by them earlier today. So there's the um, seriously they they um, produce called the gift of injury. I'll also throw that the other side of the coin is the curse of talent. And that's yeah. what happens because very talented athletes don't have to work as hard. Now, the problem with them is when they do meet someone who may be better than them, when they meet adversity, they're not resilient. And I've noticed that in a lot of sports, very, very talented juniors who tear through all the ranks and then they get beaten by somebody who perhaps didn't have as much talent but worked a bit harder. Well, that complete affront to their psyche can be the end of their careers. So talent can be a spectacular curse to a young athlete. You know, you really need to face adversity. You need not to be the best as a junior. And if you are, you've got to find some way to fail because you better get used to failure because that's going to make you grow more spectacularly. And that's mm -hmm. where the curse of talent really comes in. Yeah, you've got the gift of injury and you've got the curse of talent. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it definitely makes sense as well. Like, actually, I read, um, oh, this would have been like maybe six or seven years ago. I actually read a book by, it was a really interesting book. It was this guy who would like, he was basically like a PhD collector. He, he had like a mathematics PhD, a PhD in like statistics, and then one in, I think, maybe sports science or something like that. And then he was essentially like, this book was just basically, it was so interesting. He's like, you know, if you are this tall and have a wingspan of this, there's an 80% chance you already play in the NBA. If you have this, and it talks about like self, like natural 
not natural selection, talked about like selection bias and self-sorting. It mm. talked about, um, and it also talked about exactly what you're talking about, um, which is uh, athletes who get different levels of development or different levels of skill said the same thing that you did as well, actually. And he's like, you see these high skill individuals peter out because they didn't have to face adversity. And then he also talked about another aspect of it, which, which was children who were born depending on where they're born in the year and when the season starts mm. because they're bigger and more formidable they get more exposures which makes them better and kind of feeds into that cycle so it, it, there, there's so many interesting things this is kind of off topic but it's 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 super interesting when you kind of hear other people's models of how the world works you're just like fuck i never thought of it like that and somebody's going to hear what you said there and that's going to make a difference to their life because it's going to ring a bell for them either for <laughs> them or either for them or somebody they care about I mean, hopefully that's kind of the point of the podcast, right? Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to, uh, I was hoping that you could talk about rigidity uh, and, and how it pertains to like injury performance, tissue tolerance and, and all that stuff. Because I think just the idea of rigidity in general, I don't think people necessarily appreciate how important it is and, and how it affects like your entire system, especially like in strength sports as well. And like, you know, your breathing, your bracing mechanics, all of that stuff. So, you know, feel free to just kind of go off the rails on this one. Uh, why not? I've got, I got spines all around the place. There we go. There's a bit of a spine for you, okay? <laughs> this is a wonderful model by Dynamic Disc Designs. They make the best models in the world, right? These people, Jerome there, he makes the models that move and they show how things work. Now, one of the things about rigidity is there's a few layers to human movement. So when you move your arm, your contralateral part of your body has to be prepared for the change in your center of mass. So any movement that you have in your body that you've basically learned to walk, crawl, and start to move with, you'll have set patterns from your spinal cord reflexes that set up your spine to enable you to move the distal limbs. So the rigidity, which we could talk about, comes from an area which we could call the proprioception. Oh, this little muscle here, there's one called the intertransversari. Now, this is the one that's really been missed, and I think that's one of the big failures of some of the researchers, was when looking at muscles in the human body, they tend to look at what muscles can produce force. So how much cross-sectional area they have. Well, this little thing doesn't have much cross-sectional area but it's very, very dense in muscle spindles. So what was missed and is constantly missed in a lot of the biomechanical modeling is these aren't force producers. These are the things that underlyingly set up the force production. So the control of the human body has to come from the spine before the distal part of the body moves. So we say we must set up the axial. So the muscles that do the first preparation for movement They'll be your transverse abdominus, perhaps, and your multifidus muscles, but they're not a force couple, okay? That was an area in research back in 96. Um, transverse abdominus basically produces intra-abdominal pressure, and that's part of the mechanism of our spinal stability, how to decrease the amount of compression. We're increasing intra-abdominal pressure. Transverse abdominus is the first muscle that's going to basically move regardless of what you're going to do, what direction you're going to do, it's going to prepare for movement. Whereas multifidus in the back there, that's direction specific, depending upon your flexion, depending upon load, it depends upon direction and loads. These things have to be set up then for you to be able to perform the movements that you do and they have to do it very quickly. And that's your interspinale and intertransversari that live in here. So the integrated nervous system realistically has a pattern underneath it that prepares for a variety of movements. So it's just like a basic movement patterning and movement preparation. So when we say rigidity, the rigidity is set up from the proprioceptive system. And that's another interesting part of the research I've been doing is I started looking at what happened when I got somebody to do a single leg stance with their eyes shut and then put them back into a task. And amazingly, if you want to test this one, and I haven't published on it yet, but it'll be coming up, is that if you get a person to put their hands on their hips and standing and bend backward once, feel the range. Now, take your shoes off, shut your eyes and stand for 30 seconds on one leg and then 30 seconds on the other. Do that twice. 
retest your lumbar extension. Now, pretty much every case we've ever seen, it moves dramatically. It changes phenomenally. Now, shit, I just got you to stand on one leg with your eyes shut. I just accessed your proprioceptive system. And because I accessed that, especially in lumbar spine rehab, that changes your body's ability then to prepare for movement, and it will then allow you to movement. You'll only be restricted if the body feels it can't control that area. So you're setting up the basic rigidity by introducing proprioception. That's a really awesome part of the underlying thing. That I came across this a few years ago, and I've used it a lot in athletes. That's where you'll see people with bars on their back with a band on one side with the weight moving up and down. They're going to walk out. They're going to squat with it. It's basically setting up vibrations for the body to have to integrate what's happening to the spine. And that's been a big part of spinal rehab that I do. So the setting up of rigidity is basically a really super important part of the rehab. But then you're going to do the motor control work because multifidus is the uh, multifidus which sits in the spinal area there. That's the only one that has spinal segmental control. That's the one that controls it is your multifidus. Your iliocostalis and longissimus muscles in the lumbar area, they produce posterior shear force that opposes the anterior shear. And then you've got your thoracic components. Well, thoracic components basically are able to hold your lordosis and neutral better. They're better on compression. They don't have the posterior shear protection. Everything is very much set around, like I call it, biological um, engineering. And rehab is like that. So setting up rigidity can be wonderfully complex from learning how to control your thoracic spine, learning how to control your lumbar spine, learning how to control intersegmental area. And all that's going to come off your hip torque. So you better have a strong ass. You better be able to brace. Transverse abdominus is setting that up for painless human movement. It's the best and exciting thing in the world. And yeah, of course, we know a lot about lower back pain. <laughs> so when you're looking at, uh, let's say, utilizing those sort of reflexive stabilizing exercises like the, you know, the earthquake bar, the bamboo bar, whatever yeah. You're primarily using them as a proprioceptive tool, like as part of your preparatory work? Yeah, very much. Part? Yeah? Yeah, because that's the error in the motor programming that tends to produce pain, is mm -hmm. people's inability to stabilize the area. There's a guy called Punjabi. Everyone should know Punjabi's neutral zone theory. So if you don't and you're doing rehab, you better go read it. Okay, so the integration. It's why we use the hamstrings for anterior cruciate ligament disruptions you're going to use an active system to make up for a passive system. So in lumbar spine injury, where you have a ligamentous structure, which includes the disc, which has now been injured, you have more play and movement in the spine. So it'll have a little bit more segmental movement in that area. Now, that's because the ligamentous structure has been disrupted. Punjabi's neutral zone theory then teaches you how to put motor control and active muscular systems together to maximize the stability over a lax uh, passive structure such as ligament. No, that's so, science. That how much of that overlaps with that? I'm not sure if you've heard of a method of application of error, where mm -hmm. essentially, like Olympic weightlifters, they would get you to um, kind of lean into your technical fault. So if you're looping the bar, the coach would ask you to intentionally loop the bar even more, and by amplifying that uh, that error it like teaches your nervous system how to correct, how to self-correct. Is it similar to that, but like more That's a like tool. That? The right tool for the right person, for the right reason at the right time. Mm -hmm. And then we add the right load and the right frequency, and you've got the major six tenets of the rehab approach to exercise selection. Choose the right exercise for the right person, for the right reason, at the right time, with the right load and the right frequency. Shit, there's six things there when you choose an exercise as appropriate for rehab. or Corrections. Yeah, right. that really makes sense. You're using a tool there. Now, you might find that tool didn't help. Then you use another tool and you might go back to that one after you've done that. You might mm -hmm. have to teach someone how to hold a better position, then try and work that amplified error, and then they'll get it better because they didn't connect to it. So everything's a tool in the toolkit. As we say, if the only tool in your you know, toolkit's a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But if you've got a really big toolkit, you can play with things and still get back to ending up using the hammer if you need to. Right. Um, I, I was more so wondering, like, if the mechanisms were the same, just kind I of like... It makes sense that it's under there, doesn't it? Yes, that your 
you know, in a situation like that where you're putting the basically the anterior um, movement of your center of mass is going to cause your body to reflexively have to pull back against that. That makes sense. And you might be teaching that. Whereas, as you're saying, if there's a person who has that error, but they're not responding to it, if you increase the error, they might get the response. And right. then it's teaching them how to minimize the error when you take them back to it. That makes sense. I like the thinking behind that. And so when it comes, because like I, I've read a lot of um, research and personally, I'm a huge believer of this, that um, movement variability is is protective if, you know, with the caveats of like, if you do it intelligently, not like a fucking idiot. But um, it, in this sense, it wouldn't necessarily because you're increasing tissue tolerance beyond like kind of your, you know, let's say your your neutral range or whatever you want to call it, or within a certain scope of like functional technical execution, it would be more that, of that reflexive component. It would be more like you're reducing the likelihood that you are going to get out of position in the first place because you're more rigid and you're more like your, your motor skills are a little bit more refined. Is that kind of the... Well, I would also say, would you like to learn guitar and learn to play shit? <laughs> no, to learn no. to play excellently. Don't yeah. don't screw it up. So, I think if you spend time learning how to do something poorly, you've just wasted an opportunity to learn how to do something excellently. Total. Sorry, sorry, sorry. So, I'll I'll clarify what I said. Um, I'm talking about the the earthquake bar when you're squatting yeah. and you're moving like that. That's kind of more so narrowing the. Uh, the 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 motor pattern down to like a particular way as opposed to increasing tissue resiliency through a greater range of motion um sorry those were two separate statements <laughs> i was, I was, I was glorious yeah. at least our <laughs> listeners now have been now they're they're focused they know where we're going on this one you weren't <laughs> you weren't saying learn to squat shit because it'll help you squat better no that no was yeah my, my bad i didn't i didn't realize that that's how it sounds i apologize <laughs> for for not clarifying um yeah, throw challenges in. Yes, that's a very good way to improve the feedback to your body. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that uh, I, I did kind of want to get your uh, perspective on was maybe like individual variability in terms of um, flexion, extension, tolerance, because one of the things that I personally noticed, I had two very serious back injuries um, and then... Uh, this was a long time ago, and I actually noticed that the one thing that really, really helped me was actually shifting. Like, I just, I think I'm like stuck in extension and compression. So yep. for me, having to get back to neutral was very, very difficult. And I actually have much more of like a rounded upper back, like upper thoracic than mm. I think maybe most people. Like when I'm standing mm. there, it's normal, but like from a lucky guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, but like from a performance standpoint, you you visibly will see it when I'm deadlifting. Like you'll you see. Know what, you you like know what? You know does that? I asked this question of Professor McGill back in 2015, and we had a bit of discussion. On it, and my theory behind that is the flexion of the thoracic spine will increase to the correct length tension relationship for your iliocostalis and longissimus muscles. So if you get a little bit more flexion in your thoracic spine. It's like the length tension relationship of muscle. The strongest part of it's in its mid-range, not its stretch or its over-contraction. Your body may naturally be finding the length tension relationship position that's optimal for lifting that weight. So you need a little bit more flexion. That's mm. what I think is behind the successful thoracic flexion position because I think it enables a better cross-sectional cross-bridging to enable you to hold that position and then use that lever against your hip torque. That's interesting. Yeah, because I... I've, I've like looked at it and I'm like, huh, I don't know why I just feel stronger. They're like, I feel stronger in that position, even without a belt, than if mm. I strap on a belt and just try and get more of like what looks like a very neutral position. You'll just, also be decreasing the moment arm too. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And so I don't know, it's, it's, it's just interesting. And then you see other people who they try it and they're like, ah, that hurts my back. Other people are like super rounded over and they're like, I feel really good here. And so when I started moving in like more of that kind of upper back flex position, uh, even doing like rows and stuff there, that's when I actually started really feeling my lats for the first time, my upper back. I felt like a lot of my shoulder kinematics started improving actually, because like I have a lot of, um, especially on my right side, I've got some like, what is it, dyskinesis or something like that in my, in my, with my actual scapular rhythm or some shit. I don't know. I'm not a 
I'm not a doctor, but uh, that's okay. Just follow my Instagram. You'll fix it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, you know, so it's funny because I, I actually did. I actually did check out your your things. And I'm pretty sure I even messaged you about it. Um, yeah. Just like everyone else, I forget to answer. Yeah. Oh no, that was the that was the neck thing. Ah uh, yes. Yeah, I was having was some shoulder issues, and then I saw your your video on the neck or whatever, and then I saw some other stuff. And so I remember messaging you about that a while back. But uh, but yeah, actually, some of those exercises have been really really helpful. Um, uh, good. I will and, do some more. Uh, I'm going to come over to Portland anyway, so I look forward to being there about July. I think. Man, if you're down here, it'd be great to it'd be great to link up. I'd love to have you in the gym and get some training sessions in together. So it'd be awesome. Oh, we will. We're going to be there. I'm landing in about the end of May because of the Jiu-Jitsu World Championships. My daughter is competing, and then the oh, week nice. after, yeah, the week after that, uh, Eddie and myself will be doing the first seminar. We're going to head up the coast, and we'll end up in Portland. Awesome, man. So we're we're coming up on that hour mark, and I want to be respectful of your time. So. Um, what uh, what are some practical takeaways? Just kind of the discussion that we talked about today that, uh, that you can give to the audience to, to take home and, and enhance their ability to just get better results in their own training. Look at look at where you get your sources of information from. Are they people who do have success, and do they have success with really good athletes? Uh, if somebody makes a, a topic sound complicated, uh, they probably don't understand it that well. You probably need some find somebody who can make it fairly clear because I do think realistically this isn't a tough topic to understand. You know, weight training, resistance training, the principles are very clear. Um, if you get really good with understanding the basics, then the sort of other parts of it will start to assimilate and stick a little bit better. So it is get really good at the core and the basic work and understand those things. And if you're learning how to be a, a lifter of some form, um, really focus on one lift as being the thing that you need to understand really well rather than trying to understand everything at once. And that comes into that concept to be the best in the world at something. Okay, learn how to deadlift a lot really, really well frequently and understand squat. But then once you really understand deadlift, you'll probably understand how to play with your squat better and that's your next learning thing. And then you'll learn how to put your bench together better. But if you just try and learn everything at once, you will not be able to understand so much really well. And you'll miss the application of something that the deadlift could have taught your bench press. So mm. get good at one thing first. The best advice is if you want to be successful in life, be out of balance. People who are balanced are shit at everything. Okay? They're not good at anything. They're a little bit crap at everything. If you want to be really good, prepare that your perhaps your financial situation, your relationships aren't going to be that good, but you might become a really good athlete. But you've got to find a thing that's important to you, and that's what's going to put you out of balance. And for me, I love weight training, so I'm slightly out of balance that way. Don't worry about being balanced in life. That's the biggest path to failure. Awesome. It's funny, actually, because, like, I've I've made several posts about, like, how balance is important, but especially, like, it's from the lens that you just described, where it's, like, mm. balance for an elite athlete is not, you know, 25% here, 25% there, 25. It's like, no, no, no. It's like 90% here and then 10% here. But that's yes. enough to allow you to continue pushing in that direction. And you'll and be so a happy I, person. I love, I love that you said it. <laughs> yeah, awesome. that's us, man. So, yeah, really, really appreciate uh, your your time. There was a lot of really interesting stuff that we covered. Um, I know the listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Where can people find you? Best place at this moment is just via Instagram, just Andrew underscore lock underscore strength. Soon enough, then when I put the um, courses up on the Kajabi platform, then I'll let everyone know. Awesome. So that's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely go make sure you give him a follow. He puts out lots of great content on the regular. Like I said, I've hit him up before, um, you know, because he's uh, he's helped me with, with some shoulder stuff that I had. So Definitely go check it out. And is there anything that uh, that you wanted to pitch? Any projects? Any courses? I know you mentioned you're working on a couple of things. Uh, look, I work with so many great people, like Josh Lenardowitz. We're doing our Science of Size project. Uh, Australian strength coach Sebastian Ira and myself teach our three lift pros um, over three days. Uh, Dr. Danny Antonellis and myself do a gluteal workshop where we teach all the essentials there. Life is just busy. Super Dan. Awesome, man. Um, yeah, so if you send me all that stuff, then I'll definitely make sure I link it up uh, in, in the show notes so people can go check it out. Thanks again for, for jumping on, man. Awesome. awesome. I can't wait to catch up, man. It's going to be great. 
look forward to uh, catching up in Portland because that is definitely on the list. I was speaking to Chris about it. We'll organize something to do. Yeah, absolutely, man. I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be like the last weekend in June is my figure because we're going to do LA, Monterey, San Francisco, then probably come straight up to Portland over four weekends.